we are told that we must prepare to endure 5, 10, 20 years of tension, of expanding government and government costs, of widening government controls, of high taxes, of military service for our youth, of a garrison state economy. Think what this will mean. It will mean that by the end of 20 years, if it does end then, we will have had two whole generations of Americans who have never had the opportunity to know the real America. They will have no experience with the real individual independence that made this country great, but on the contrary, they will accept it as an accustomed thing, the detailed control over their private lives by a powerful central government. End quote. That's from Ernest Weir in a 1951 speech. And then I have another quote. We have got to accept big government for the duration. For neither an offensive nor a defensive war can be waged, given our present government skills, except through the instrument of a totalitarian bureaucracy within our shores. And if they deem Soviet power a menace to our freedom, as I happen to, they will have to support large armies and air forces, atomic energy, central intelligence, war production boards, and the attendant centralization of power in Washington, even with Truman at the reins of it all. End quote. Now, both these quotes are talking about the same thing. They're talking about America in the early Cold War as the permanent garrison national security state system was really coming into being. But... As you could probably tell, they had opposite takes on it. The first quote had a negative foreboding take of what this is going to mean to what America really is all about. And the second quote is saying that this is actually a good thing and it's absolutely necessary and kind of don't worry about the negatives of creating this permanent national security state. The first quote from Ernest Weir who was a businessman and activist of the so-called old right, was in a 1951 speech. By the way, Weir was a steel man who I think at least may have in part been the inspiration for Hank Reardon and Atlas Shrugged, if you've ever read that. I think his steel company was even called something like Weirton Steel, which, you know, sounds like, like Reardon Steel. But anyway, the second quote came from one of the leading figures of the New Right, the much more hawkish, much less concerned about individual liberties version of right-wing politics. And it is William F. Buckley Jr. in a January 25th, 1952 article in the Catholic magazine Commonweal. And the article was entitled A Young Republican's View. So in those two brief excerpts, those two brief quotes, Weir's speech and Buckley's article we can already see the drastic shift that is the focus of this episode today. We can already see a major change in what it means to be right-wing or conservative in American politics. And I love those two quotes, and I put them at the beginning of the episode because not only do they neatly encapsulate many of the key differences between the old and new right, but again, they're separated by just one year. The Weir quote was from 1951, and the Buckley quote was from early 1952. They're probably separated by less than one year. I'm not sure exactly what month of 1951 Weir said his quote, but it's the exact time in the early 1950s that the new right was rising and throwing the old right, for the most part, under the bus. And again, both quotes reveal that both men... Weir and Buckley saw this shift taking place, though obviously they had opposite attitudes on whether this is something to be welcomed as good and necessary or something to be worried about as ominous. 
I'm CJ, your one-man revolution, guerrilla scholar warrior, and renaissance man in this new dark age, here with another blast of dangerous history. This is episode 115, Out with the Old Right, In with the New Right. And I'm going to examine in more detail this shift that took place. I'm going to spell out in, in detail some of what the Old Right, who they were, what they were all about, and then talk briefly about a few of the leading lights of the New Right and kind of how they stole the brand of right-wing or conservative and turn it into something that in many ways is very different from what it meant up until the early 50s. But first, before I proceed any further, got to do some Patreon shoutouts. Big thank yous to Bob, Eric, Nicole, and Wayne. Thank you all very much for stepping up to support the Dangerous History Podcast via Patreon. To any of you listening, if you enjoy this show, want to see it continue to truck along and keep gradually getting better, as I think it has in the two-plus years I've been doing it, please consider becoming a supporter of the show via Patreon. There are a lot of different ways to help out the show financially. I mention a bunch of them at the end of the show, but one of the most helpful is to become a Patreon supporter and sign up for an ongoing per-episode donation. And if you sign up to help the Dangerous History Podcast for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly welcome, but for just $1 per episode, you will have access to special bonus content that I put out periodically there that's available nowhere else. Only my Patreon supporters at a buck or more have access to it. Extra bonus DHP episodes. So you get to do some good. You get to help keep this show going that presumably you enjoy if you're considering supporting it. And you also get to get some extra doses of Dangerous History podcast every now and then. In addition, one more relatively recent addition is that if you sign up to support the show at a buck per episode or more... You are eligible, if you so desire, to join the Dangerous History Podcast private Facebook group, the Dangerous History Scholar Warriors, and that, again, is open to no one else other than myself and my Patreon supporters. And, of course, if you sign up to help out the show on Patreon, I will thank you by name in the next show that I produce, as I just did for the four awesome individuals I mentioned a minute ago. Just a reminder, if you're trying to get into the Dangerous History Scholar Warriors Facebook group. If your Patreon name and your Facebook name are not the same, please contact me to let me know who you are on Patreon. Otherwise, I'll see somebody trying to join the group and I pull up my list of Patreon supporters and I don't see this the same name and I won't let you in. But, you know, if you just message me on Facebook or email me or whatever and let me know, hey, my name's this on Facebook, my name's this on Patreon, then I'll be happy to let you in. Also, you must be a current person on your Patreon payments. In other words, you can't have declined payments in order for me to let you into the Facebook group. So double check on that before you apply to be in the group. Sometimes people's credit cards expire or whatever and they don't update it. But if that's the case, you lose your benefits because you're no longer actively supporting the show. So go take care of that and then I'll be happy to let you in. Also, a reminder, one more time before the event actually happens, I'll be at the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest the last weekend in August, which is just a few days from when I'm recording this, and I'll be speaking there on Saturday at high noon, and here, one more time, is Lou from Freedom Fiends with more on the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. Are you sick and tired of peaceful people being banned from so-called liberty events? How about liberty festivals that are more regulated than a government housing area? Now you can do something about it. 
The Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition is proud to announce the 4th Annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. It will be held Friday, August 26th through Monday the 29th at the Circle Pine Center in Delton, Michigan, just outside of Kalamazoo. There will be canoeing, kayaking, hiking, fishing, swimming, presentations, discussions, and bacon. Lots of bacon. This event is both adult and family friendly and best of all, no overbearing central planners. There will be free Freedom Fiends and Bipcop merch while supplies last. And don't forget the longer leashes for the Bow Wows and Woof Woofs. Round up your friends and family members and get them registered today at mplfest.org. That's Mike, Papa, Lima, Fest.org. All right, thanks, Lou. Now we're going to get into the meat of the show and starting off with who the old right were and kind of what their beliefs were. Now, first off, the term the old right is not a term or a label that the people that we now identify as being of the old right would have used to describe themselves at the time. It's actually a term that was coined, as far as I know, by Murray Rothbard years later, kind of looking back in hindsight at this loose coalition of politicians and writers and so on. He coined this term to differentiate it from the new right, the Buckleyite, uber-hawkish militarist right. And so the term old right is used to describe, in hindsight, a group of people who were thought of for at least a few decades as quote-unquote conservative or right-wing in American politics for a while, but who were very, very different from what those terms, conservative and right-wing, have generally meant in American politics since about the mid-1950s. And two of the best books that I'm aware of to get the history of the old right and also some of the story of how the new right threw them under the bus are Justin Romando's book, Reclaiming the American Right, The Lost Legacy of the Conservative Movement, and Murray Rothbard's Betrayal of the American Right. And I think Bill Kaufman also has a book dealing with this, but I've not read it. I think it's Ain't My America. Probably good. I've always enjoyed reading articles by Bill Kaufman, but I've not read that particular book myself. So this is how Justin Raimondo describes the old right in his book, Reclaiming the American Right. He calls them, quote, that coalition of libertarian and conservative writers, publicists and politicians who united against the Roosevelt Revolution, referring to FDR, opposed U.S. entry into World War II and decried the permanent war economy, end quote. Also, according to Raimondo, the old right had a particular version of of American exceptionalism. And it's a very different idea of American exceptionalism. The modern mainstream conservatives and neoconservatives, their version of American exceptionalism is a very aggressive, warlike one. The old right's American exceptionalism, by contrast, was more in keeping with things like the rhetoric of Thomas Jefferson, the ideas of America staying out of the rest of the world's wars and problems and so on, especially the wars and problems of Europe, and of kind of conscientiously, deliberately abstaining from the imperialism and statism that characterize most of Europe. And according to Raimondo, and I think he's right, both the mainstream American left and the post-1950s mainstream American right have really embraced European-style statism for the most part. And this is at odds with a lot of what America's traditional ideology and rhetoric was. Again, with the usual caveats that I know that in reality the U.S. 
never consistently matched the rhetoric, but at least like that was something that people thought should be how it was or aspired to as a goal. Now, elsewhere in the same book, Raimondo defines the old and new right against each other in these terms, quote, The old right, the original right, was nationalist, populist, and fundamentally libertarian. The Cold War right, dominated in large part by ex-leftist converts to conservatism, was militantly internationalist, increasingly elitist, and largely indifferent to free market economics, end quote. In Murray Rothbard's introduction to the 1991 edition of his book, Betrayal of the American Right, he writes this, quote, The old right arose during the 1930s as a reaction against the Great Leap Forward, or backward, into collectivism that characterized the New Deal. The old right continued and flourished through the 1940s and down to about the mid-1950s. The old right was staunchly opposed to big government and the New Deal at home and abroad, that is, to both facets of the welfare warfare state. It combated U.S. intervention in foreign affairs and foreign wars as fervently as it opposed intervention at home, end quote. Elsewhere in the same book, Rothbard writes, quote, Since the essence of the old right was a reaction against runaway big government at home and overseas, this meant that the old right was necessarily, even if not always consciously, libertarian rather than statist, radical rather than traditional conservative apologists for the existing order. End quote. Rothbard identifies some of the kind of ideological ancestors of the old right in the Jeffersonian party of the early American Republic, in some of the Jacksonians of a generation or so later, as well as the transcendentalists and radical abolitionists such as William Lloyd Garrison of the antebellum period. And Rothbard says of them that they, quote, all were basically laissez-faire individualists who carried on the age-old battle for liberty and against all forms of state privilege, end quote. Now, a lot of these different strands started to converge and coalesce into a loose movement over opposition to early 20th century American progressivism and then U.S. entry into World War I, which was mostly something done by the progressives. Some of the opponents of progressivism and American entry into the war were old-school bourbon Democrats, meaning kind of Grover Cleveland-style Democrats who believed, for the most part, in the same ideals as Jefferson of keeping government minimal and all that kind of stuff. And then some of the people who gravitated into this loose coalition, and eventually they or their intellectual descendants became part of this old right, were actually progressives, at least initially, who started to be turned off in a big way by mainstream progressivism, by the war and all of the militarism and so on of the Wilson administration. And for that matter, of most mainstream progressives. I mean, you can go look at the New Republic magazine, you can go find quotes from John Dewey, these sorts of people who suddenly became super hawk warmongers during World War One, And at least some of these people, like John Dewey, had previously claimed to be all opposed to war, you know, on principle. And so there were some prominent progressives, including some politicians and some writers, who that was when they kind of broke from progressivism. The war was the wedge that caused them to then question the whole thing. And a very interesting individual whose life was tragically cut short by the post-World War I flu epidemic was a writer named Randolph Bourne, 
who wrote an essay entitled War is the Health of the State. He had been a progressive, but then the war really soured him on progressivism, and he seems to have been moving in a direction more and more towards some type of libertarianism or individualist anarchism. But again, tragically, his life was cut quite short when the so-called Spanish flu epidemic nabbed him as one of the millions of victims around the world. Ironically, in these very early days of kind of the proto-old right, they were more likely to be, if they were involved in politics or their sympathies, if they weren't, they were more likely to lean towards the Democrats than towards the Republicans. As Rothbard writes, quote, the Republican Party was clearly the major enemy. He's talking about, you know, at the time, like prior to the 1930s. Eternal Hamiltonian champions of big government and intimate government partnership with big business through tariffs, subsidies, and contracts, longtime brandishers of the imperial big stick, the Republicans had capped their anti-libertarian sins by being the party most dedicated to the tyranny of prohibition. End quote. By contrast, at the time, the old right, or what was eventually going to morph into the old right, was more comfortable with the, as Rothbard puts it, quote, the conservative bourbon, non-Wilsonian, or Cleveland wing of the Democratic Party, a wing that at least tended to be wet, was opposed to war and foreign intervention, and favored free trade and strictly minimal government, end quote. Of course, Beginning in the 1896 election, when the William Jennings Bryan populist progressive types started to dominate a lot of the National Democratic Party, those Cleveland or Bourbon old school Jeffersonian type Democrats were increasingly on the wane. By the way, one of the most hated targets of this early version of the old right was the um, progressive Republican Herbert Hoover. A lot of people don't know, they believe the fairy tale that Herbert Hoover was a strict laissez-faire capitalist libertarian or something, and they don't know that, no, he was actually quite a progressive and did quite a lot during his presidency to, quote-unquote, help the Depression. Of course, all of it made things worse, and then FDR's New Deal was in large part simply taking the things Hoover had tried, cranking them up to 12 and a half and trying it again. And you can actually find a lot of... um I don't know about a lot of, but you can definitely find some prominent people who had worked in the FDR administration admitting this towards kind of the end of the New Deal era. By the way, a great book to read if you want a lot of the details on what Hoover was really up to is America's Great Depression by Murray Rothbard. Also, maybe surprising, in the 1920s, the earliest people who would later form what we think of as the old right actually were more likely to identify themselves as being of the left rather than the right, because they very much opposed corporate privilege. However, because they were individualists who also opposed big government as much as big corporations, they really couldn't get on too well or too comfortably with at least the mainstream of the American left. So they were kind of in limbo a little bit. And it was the coming of the New Deal that really decisively split off whatever ties remained between the proto-old right and the American left at the time. The old right saw the New Deal as an American version of economic fascism, which, by the way, there's actually some very good historical evidence to that fact. There are multiple good books and articles and things like this. You can read all the details that a lot of the guys working for FDR and the New Deal were at the time, because you know World War II hadn't happened yet, they were open in their praise, in particular of Mussolini's policies, and some of them even of, of Hitler's economic policies after 1933. 
And it was at this time when the Democratic Party in the United States was totally taken over by the FDR types that the old right really began to identify themselves politically with the right. And they started to make some alliances with people and groups they'd previously opposed, such as, for example, the conservatives, like traditional conservatives, and progressive light people like Herbert Hoover, who, because FDR went even further than Hoover was willing to do in progressivism, Hoover was, and and a lot of other people around him, ended up being not on board with the more extreme aspects of the New Deal. And they also later opposed FDR's militarism. Former President Herbert Hoover in particular was not a big fan of America moving towards intervening in World War II. And so some of these old right types who had previously hated people like Herbert Hoover, they started to make at least some degree of an alliance of convenience for a while against the New Dealers. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about just some of the individuals who were prominent among the so-called old right. And really, the heyday of the old right is from the early 1930s until the early 1950s. The first I'd like to talk about is H.L. Mencken. And I'll probably do a whole feature on him one day, so I'm not going to give you his whole life story, but just mention a little bit about him. He was a prominent journalist. So Mencken's a very interesting guy. He's a brilliant writer, and a brilliant social critic, and he's got a wonderful biting sense of sarcastic humor. There are some things he wrote over the years that today would be considered, you know, racially insensitive or whatever, and I'm certainly not here to defend or endorse that stuff. But when it came to the idea of just in general, individual liberty, Mencken was a a brilliantly funny and articulate explainer of that. Because he actually favored a genuinely free market system, Mencken not only bashed big government, but just as viciously he attacked big business, since it usually was in bed with the government, and it was conspiring against real free competitive market forces, you know, for their own mutual benefit. In other words, big business and big government getting in bed together to rig the economy for the benefit of, shockingly, big business and big government. So, for example, in 1924, writing in regard to the Democratic Party's nomination of John W. Davis for president, who, by the way, had been J.P. Morgan's personal attorney in years past, Writing in regards to this choice for president of the Democratic Party in 1924, Mencken wrote, quote, of, of Davis, he used to work for J. Pierpont Morgan, and he has himself said that he is proud of the fact. Mr. Morgan is an international banker engaged in squeezing nations that are hard up and in trouble. His operations are safeguarded for him by the manpower of the United States. He was one of the principal beneficiaries of the late war, meaning World War I, and made millions out of it. The government hospitals are now full of one-legged soldiers who gallantly protected his investments then, and the public schools are full of boys who will protect his investments tomorrow, end quote. So, Megan was pretty doggone libertarian. I think he even referred to himself as something like a Tory anarchist, maybe, and understood that big business and corporate America was also not just big government, but also big business and corporate America, not exactly a friend to 
true individual liberty and true free market economics. Of course, while Mencken was hitting Davis in that particular case, he was bipartisan in his hatred, and he was equally opposed to Republican politicians of his day. So, for example, he had previously attacked Warren Harding, who ran for president and won as a Republican in 1920. He had attacked Warren Harding for being a tool of Standard Oil. And Mencken has so many great quotes, and again, I'm going to probably do a feature just on him at some point. I mean, his writing is so, so brilliant. But one of my many favorite making quotes is the following, quote, The most dangerous man to any government is the man who is able to think things out for himself without regard to the prevailing superstitions and taboos. Almost inevitably, he comes to the conclusion that the government he lives under is dishonest, insane, and intolerable. And so, if he is romantic, he tries to change it. And even if he is not romantic personally, he is very apt to spread discontent among those who are. End quote. Another Mencken quote. I believe in only one thing, and that thing is human liberty. If ever a man is to achieve anything like dignity, it can happen only if superior men are given absolute freedom to think what they want to think and say what they want to say. And the superior man can be sure of freedom only if it is given to all men, end quote. So Megan was an elitist, but he wanted everyone to be equally free. He thought that only in that kind of a situation could the, the best people reach their fullest potential and that this would benefit society as a whole. The most brilliant and creative people being totally unshackled to unleash what they're capable of. And one last short Mencken quote I'll leave you with, all government is evil and trying to improve it is largely a waste of time. Well, Mencken was sort of like a, an early godfather intellectually of the old right. By the time the old right really hit its prime, I think Mencken was sort of more or less semi-retired or, you know, at least kind of on the back burner. But he was very important in the 20s and at least to some extent in the 30s as a voice of this. They wouldn't have called it this back then, but what today we would look back and say kind of proto-libertarian movement. Another important individual in the old right was the writer and journalist, you know, he wrote novels, essays, journal articles, you know, newspaper articles, etc., Garrett Garrett. And yes, his first and last name are almost the same. His first name is his first name is spelled G-A-R-E-T, and his last name is spelled G-A-R-R-E-T-T. So just, you know, double a couple of letters. And he was a, a consistent exponent of this old right ideology, and he also was a good writer, but with a very kind of oddball, but at least I think in a good way, distinctive, sort of quirky style. So, for example, here is a little excerpt of what he wrote in an essay entitled The Revolution Was in 1938. And he was writing about what the New Deal had done. And he saw it differently than how most people, at the time at least, saw it. Quote from Garrett Garrett. There are those who still think they are holding the pass against a revolution that may be coming up the road. But they are gazing in the wrong direction. The revolution is behind them. 
It went by in the night of depression, singing songs to freedom. There are those who have never ceased to say very earnestly, something is going to happen to the American form of government if we don't watch out. These were the innocent disarmers. Their trust was in words. They had forgotten their Aristotle. More than 2,000 years ago, he wrote of what can happen within the form when one thing takes the place of another so that the ancient laws will remain while the power will be in the hands of those who have brought about a revolution in the state. By the way, side note, he's talking about how under FDR and the New Deal, the U.S. Constitution stayed the same and nominally the overall system was the same system as before, but in reality there was this revolution within the form where things were not the same. Back to Garrett Garrett, worse outwitted were those who kept trying to make sense of the New Deal from the point of view of all that was implicit in the American scheme, charging it therefore with contradiction fallacy, economic ignorance, and general incompetence to govern. But it could not be so embarrassed and all that line was wasted because, in the first place, it never intended to make that kind of sense, and secondly, it took off from nothing that was implicit in the American scheme. It took off from a revolutionary base. The design was European. Regarded from the point of view of revolutionary technique, it made perfect sense. Its meaning was revolutionary, and it had no other. For what it meant to do, it was, from the beginning, consistent in principle, resourceful, intelligent, masterly in workmanship, and it made not one mistake. The end constantly held in view was power. Every miracle it passed, whether it went right or wrong, had one result. Executive power over the social and economic life of the nation was increased. End quote. And again, that's from The Revolution Was, written in 1938. And of course, if you agree with Garrett's perspective that the revolution within the form already happened, then of course, if you're a conservative in the sense of trying to defend the status quo, you're trying to defend a, a situation and a system that's already been revolutionized. And so you're no longer, again, if you agree with this perspective, you're no longer defending liberty, you're now defending this quasi-fascistic European statist way of doing things with disproportionate power specifically in the hands of the executive. And Garrett Garrett was equally opposed to militarism abroad as he was to big government at home. So, for example, after President Harry Truman took the U.S. military into war on a large scale in Korea, Without, by the way, even getting a declaration of war from Congress first, which was a much more revolutionary precedent-setting thing than most people realize today. Garrett wrote the following of this, quote, We have crossed the boundary that lies between republic and empire. There was no painted sign to say you are now entering Imperium, yet it was a very old road, and the voice of history was saying, whether you know it or not, the act of crossing may be irreversible. And now, not far ahead, is a sign that reads, no U-turns, end quote. And he wrote that in the early 50s after American intervention into the Korean War. Another important writer of the old right was John T. Flynn. John T. Flynn was actually a fan of FDR back in the 1932 presidential campaign, Franklin Roosevelt's first 
when, believe it or not, this might shock you if you've not actually looked into it. Back in his first campaign against Herbert Hoover in 1932, FDR ran primarily on a campaign of slashing government. He was running against what he characterized as Hoover's big government and and profligate spending. So he promised to slash spending and balance the budget. Now, overall, that's the complete opposite of what he actually did once he was in office. Not surprisingly, John T. Flynn, who supported FDR on that platform, very quickly got disillusioned with FDR once he was in office and began doing the opposite in most cases of what he ran on. And like many people on the old right, he saw a lot of FDR's economic policies and sort of aggressive use of of executive authority as being an American flavor of fascism. And as time went on and FDR also started steering the country towards intervening in World War II, Flynn opposed that as well, and he saw American entry into World War II as the means by which FDR's administration was going to try to salvage and complete the New Deal, of getting state control of American society even more complete than they ever could under just the peacetime New Deal. And Flynn, very bravely considering the time period when he was doing this, Flynn was arguing in print that participation in the war would make America more like the fascists that they were fighting. As a result, prior to Pearl Harbor, like many members of the old right, he was part of the America First Committee. Now, once Pearl Harbor happened, the America First Committee disbanded, and many of its members very quickly signed up for the military first chance they got, so that in the future there'd be no questions about their patriotism. But Flynn was just an absolute you know, very brave in his way. He refused to completely sell out, even though the American First Committee was disbanded. Flynn kept bravely during the war in print, criticizing American involvement in the war, and in particular, the most prescient thing, warning against the permanent long-term consequences of militarizing American society and the American system. And he very explicitly, in a book published in 1944 entitled As We Go Marching, argued that America, in the process of fighting against fascists, was becoming a lot more fascistic. Here's John T. Flynn, quote, Fascism will come at the hands of perfectly authentic Americans, as violently against Hitler and Mussolini as the next one, but who are convinced that the present economic system is washed up and that the present political system in America has outlived its usefulness, and who wish to commit this country to the rule of the bureaucratic state, interfering in the affairs of the states and cities, taking part in the management of industry and finance and agriculture, assuming the role of great national banker and investor, borrowing billions every year and spending them on all sorts of projects through which such a government can paralyze opposition and command public support, marshaling great armies and navies at crushing costs to support the industry of war and preparation for war, which will become our greatest industry. And adding to all this the most romantic adventures in global planning, regeneration, and domination, all to be done under the authority of a powerfully centralized government in which the executive will hold in effect all the powers with Congress reduced to the role of a debating society. This 
is your fascist, end quote. And all I can say is John T. Flynn sounds a lot like Nostradamus, only more clear and accurate. Another important member of the old right was a guy named Frank Chodorov, who was a prominent writer and, and journalist and intellectual. And beginning in the 1930s, Chodorov edited a journal called The Freeman, to which a lot of other old right writers, these radical individualists, contributed. And if I remember right, I think Chodorov and his his publication, The Freeman, were a big influence on Murray Rothbard. And I think Rothbard might have even written for The Freeman a little bit in its latter days. Also important and somebody who contributed to The Freeman was an individualist anarchist in the classic American Spooner tradition, Lysander Spooner type, but, you know, a century later, Albert J. Nock. And Albert J. Nock really understood this way of looking at things where big business and big government were really allies and buddies. And so, for example, Albert J. Nock wrote things like, The simple truth is that our businessmen do not want a government that will let business alone. They want a government they can use. And in probably his best-known book, Our Enemy the State, Albert J. Nock applied Franz Oppenheimer, the, the sociologist I think I've mentioned a few times on this show before, Franz Oppenheimer's sociological analysis of the state and its true origins and its true nature. What, what sociologists who study this refer to as the conquest theory of state formation. And Nock took that idea and applied it to American history and argued that the ratification of the Constitution which Americans are typically typically told to think of as like this crowning achievement of liberation, was in reality the key moment that set the U.S. on its path to becoming a big government welfare warfare state by putting in place the foundation and the scaffolding of centralization. So in this piece, Nock wrote, quote, The adoption of the Constitution was the beginning of the conservative counter-revolution, and big business was its vanguard. Against the farmers and small business, the big financial interests planned and executed a coup d'etat, simply tossing the Articles of Confederation into the wastebasket, end quote. Another one of my favorite Albert J. Nock pieces is an essay entitled Isaiah's Job, and I will definitely link to that in the show notes for this episode. In Isaiah's Job... Albert J. Nock is playing on the, the idea of the prophets as told in certain passages of the Bible, where the prophets are told that they need to tell the truth, even if it's unpopular and almost nobody seems to listen to them. And the prophets are told that they need to do this because the small, tiny group of people who are actually going to understand their message and respond to it are going to hear it. And if the prophet waters down his message to make it more acceptable to the mainstream, then the people that the prophet really wants to reach won't, won't really hear it. They won't really gravitate to it. And so the idea is there's a group out there called the remnant who are the people trying to keep alive the best of the old ways. And that's who the prophet needs to talk to. And so Nock was applying this in terms of American ideology, that he believed there was a small remnant of people who still believed in individual liberty, even in the dark days of the 30s, 40s, 50s, for individual liberty. And so he wrote of the remnant, quote, 
They are obscure, unorganized, inarticulate, each one rubbing along as best he can. They need to be encouraged and braced up, because when everything has gone completely to the dogs, they are the ones who will come back and build up a new society. And meanwhile, your preaching will reassure them and keep them hanging on. Your job is to take care of the remnant. End quote. By the way, I just have to say, if you're listening to this and made it this far, you probably are part of the current remnant in this current weird dark age in which we find ourselves increasingly. Another important writer of the old right was Isabel Patterson, who wrote a book that was pretty famous and influential for a while entitled God of the Machine. And there's a particular excerpt, a particular passage from this book that's entitled Humanitarian with a Guillotine. And in my mind, it's one of the best essays ever written about how, as I think Mencken put it, the urge to quote-unquote save humanity is almost always really about the urge to rule humanity. And that's another one. I'll link to that Humanitarian with a Guillotine in the show notes because it's brilliant. If you've never read it, it's a must read. Another member of the old right who I think was friends with or, or knew Isabel Patterson was Rose Wilder Lane, who was also a writer and was the daughter of Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of The Little House on the Prairie books. Another member of the old right would be Murray Rothbard himself, who sort of came of age politically when the old right was still around, but kind of in its sunset days. And in his early years, politically and intellectually active, that was who Rothbard identified with. Now, when they kind of faded away, he kind of struck about trying to make alliances with other factions for various causes. But that was his sort of original home in terms of practical politics was with what was left of the old right in sort of the late 40s, early 50s. Now, there were members of the government. There were congressmen and senators who were part of the old right as well. Some of them were more consistent and more principled than others, but they did exist in the 20s, 30s and 40s and even in the early 50s. One example would be Congressman Charles Lindbergh Sr., the father of the famous aviator, who was a five-term congressman, a Republican, representing Minnesota. And he was kind of an early example of the beginnings of the old right until his death in 1924. And so just to give you a couple examples, Congressman Charles Lindbergh opposed both the Federal Reserve Act and the American entry into World War I. So, you know, as congressmen go, you know, they're all kind of thugs and criminals and whatever, and I don't trust any of them very much. But to be against both the Fed and America getting into World War I, like that's, you're definitely in the realm of less bad congressmen or least bad congressmen in my book, at least. Another congressman who was part of the old right, who was pretty good on a lot of these issues during the same time period, was Congressman Howard Buffett, who was the father of Warren Buffett. And Howard Buffett was a Republican congressman from Nebraska. I forget exactly for how long. But you can find some pretty good speeches he gave that almost almost sound like something Ron Paul would have said more recently. And then probably the most prominent member of the old right who was a prominent politician, would be Senator Robert Taft, Republican senator from Ohio for a long time, the son of President William Howard Taft. He was probably the highest up, most prominent politician of the old right, though he was by no means the most consistent when it came to his actions and voting record. You can find him 
not always coming down on the same side of the issue as the rest of the old right, but he was pretty good compared to most. But old right senators who were a bit more consistent and a bit more staunch, like Senator John Bricker or Senator Kenneth Wary, they did occasionally criticize Robert Taft for not quite being consistent enough on some things. Robert Taft was a top Republican senator for many years from the 1930s until the early 1950s. I think it was the 30s when he first went to the Senate. And throughout the 30s, he was probably the most, if not one of the most, consistent and prominent high up there opponents of the New Deal. And he also opposed American intervention into World War II prior to Pearl Harbor. After Pearl Harbor happened, he kind of, you know, stepped aside, didn't fight against intervention at that point. But I will point out to his credit that Robert Taft spoke out in the Senate publicly against the internment of the Japanese Americans that happened after Pearl Harbor at the behest of Franklin Roosevelt. So good on him. And after World War II, he opposed most of the beginnings of the Cold War and the building of the permanent national security apparatus. And among other things, he opposed the creation of NATO as dangerous to America's national interests and, you know, possibly going to suck America into wars it didn't need to be a part of. He also opposed American participation in the Korean War. Taft tried to get the Republican nomination three times in 1940, 48, and 52, and each time he was beaten by a much more establishment-favored, moderate, kind of Rockefeller Republican candidate. Taft was seen as Mr. Conservative, Mr. Republican at the time, and there was a lot of the Republican base, especially in the Midwest, that he was their guy, but they just kept getting outmaneuvered at the party conventions. And when Dwight Eisenhower beat Robert Taft for the presidential nomination in 1952, and then just the following year Taft actually died, those things kind of signaled the end of the old right's influence within the Republican Party in any significant way. But I just want to share with you a little bit from a Taft speech delivered on the floor of the U.S. Senate on March 29th, 1951, against the war powers that President Truman and his administration were saying that they had in regard to the Korean War and all these powers they said that the president had because of this. And it wasn't even a declared war either. It was fought under the auspices of a UN declaration. But anyway, this is this is what Taft said. And it's hard to imagine very many Republicans today saying things like this in regard to more recent wars. Quote, I desire this afternoon to discuss only the question of the power claimed by the president to send troops anywhere in the world and involve us in any war in the world and involve us in any war in which he chooses to involve us. I wish to assert the powers of Congress and to point out that Congress has the power to prevent any such action by the president that he has no such power under the Constitution, and that it is incumbent upon the Congress to assert clearly its own constitutional powers unless it desires to lose them. We should state clearly the reasons why we believe the president has no such power as he claims. In the long run, the question we must decide involves vitally, I think, not only the freedom of the people of the United States, more and more of the world grows smaller as we are involved in problems of foreign policy. 
if in the great field of foreign policy, the president has arbitrary and unlimited power, as he now claims, then there is an end to freedom in the United States in a great realm of domestic activity, which affects in the long run every person in the United States. If the president has unlimited power to involve us in war, war is more likely. History shows that when the people have the opportunity to speak, as a rule, the people decide for peace. It shows that arbitrary rulers are more inclined to favor war than are the people at any time. I deny the conclusions of the documents presented by the president or by the executive department, and I would say that if the doctrines therein proclaimed prevailed, there would bring an end to government by the people because our foreign interests are going gradually to predominate and require a larger and larger place in the field of the activities of our people. When we add to this the danger which results from the wide powers given by treaties to international commissions to interfere in many American affairs, when we add the unlimited power of the president to fix the policy and the operations under the reciprocal trade agreements, when we add the theory that the president can do anything by executive agreement without submitting such an executive agreement to the Senate for approval as a treaty, when we reflect on the general ideas prevalent today of a planned economy for the world, I think it is fair to say that if we yield in this field of foreign policy, we will find the President of the United States as arbitrary a dictator over the people of this country as were dictators in many other countries where they gradually gain power. Mr. President, there is one very definite limit, and I think it is admitted by every responsible authority who has discussed the problem. On the president's power to send troops abroad, he cannot send troops abroad if the sending of such troops amounts to the making of war, end quote. Now, again, Robert Taft was nowhere near as radical or as consistent as many other members of the old right, not quite as libertarian, but nonetheless, compared to what most of the competition was at the time, and certainly compared to what we've got to deal with today, I think he was better on most things. Now, I got into a lot more detail on the old right than on the new because my assumption, and maybe it's wrong, but I think it's right, is that the new right is much better known to you because if you turn on Fox News or turn on Mark Levin or Rush Limbaugh on the radio, that's the new right. That's the descendants of it right there, whereas the old right is something more different. But I do want to talk a little bit about the shift to the new right and sort of who the new right were and, and how they differentiated from the old right. In his introduction to Rothbard's book, Betrayal of the American Right, Tom Woods writes of the New Right that they were a group who, quote, gave lip service to free market principles and limited government, but whose first priority for which it was willing to sacrifice anything else was military interventionism around the world, end quote. To that, I would add, I'm th I, th I think Tom Woods is correct that that's the most important distinction. But I would also add as a corollary to that, that another important difference I see is that for the most part, the old right was almost as hostile and skeptical towards big business and corporate America as they were towards the government itself. 
And by contrast, the new right is very, very positive on giant corporations and so on, and wants to treat these as being legitimate market institutions. And in most cases, other than occasionally maybe in regards to something really egregious like the Wall Street bailout, in most cases, most mainstream conservatives since, you know, 1955 or so, would much rather turn a blind eye towards the cronyism and, and corporatism and so on, and the relationship that big agricultural companies and big oil companies and so on have with the state. Anyway, back to the new right and who they were and what they believed and how they were different. I find it very interesting that many leading lights of the new right had been for their entire adult careers up until about the late 40s, early 50s. 1940s, 1950s, not their age. Uh, many of the leading lights of the old right had actually been for a long time leftists. And in many cases, they'd even been communists. And what you find with the new right is they're very happily willing to support big government Republicans as long as they're anti-communist. So the new right really didn't have much problem getting behind somebody like Richard Nixon for a long time even though Nixon was quite a big government Republican president. He created the EPA and OSHA and a whole bunch of other agencies. And in fact, of all people, Noam Chomsky has pointed out that Nixon was really a New Deal big government president. But the, the new right was totally fine with Nixon because he was aggressively anti-communist. By the way, I think this also explains the new right's willingness in more recent years to support the Bushes and their willingness to be apologists for the fact that, let's face it, rhetoric aside, Ronald Reagan really didn't have any success in the real world of rolling back the federal government despite being president for eight years. And the new right is quite happy to preferably ignore this fact or if they can't dodge it to come up with excuses and again, be apologists. Now, there were certainly many people who played a role in creating this new right and using it to displace the old right. But for the sake of time, I'm going to focus on two who I think bear more responsibility for this revolution within the form in American politics than any others. But understand that it's not just these two guys. They're just, in my opinion, arguably the two most important now, one of these guys is well-known, and one of them is not. And the first one I'm going to talk about is not nearly as well-known today, and that's James Burnham. James Burnham was a philosophy professor at NYU for a long time and, and a writer for a long time. And Justin Raimondo calls him, quote, the great-grandfather of today's neoconservatives, end quote. Now, like a lot of the neoconservatives, and the neoconservatives are kind of like a somewhat distinct thing from the larger new right, but they're clearly very closely related. The neoconservatives, many of the original neocons were former Trotskyists. And this was the case of James Burnham. Burnham. He was a Trotskyist who only left the Socialist Workers' Party in 1939, and he did so over the Hitler-Stalin pact. This becomes one of the leading intellectual lights of the new right. And in 1940, he wrote that he thought Hitler's Germany would win the war. He had a tendency to assume that whatever the trends were at the moment would continue. And so in 1940, of course, Hitler was winning and Burnham, in his infinite wisdom, said, "Ah, oh, yeah, Hitler's clearly going to triumph over all of his opponents. So someone with this much strategic savvy is, again, your intellectual founder of the new right in a lot of ways. Burnham wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution in 1941, 
in which he argued that there was a takeover of all of the important parts of American society by kind of middle bureaucrats, managers, technocrats, etc., both in, in the government and in the private sector. And he argued that this was both inevitable and a good thing. Now, it was happening at the time because of American intervention in World War II, but whether or not it's destined to continue forever and whether or not it's a good thing, of course, is much more debatable. And in this book, Burnham ridiculed American businessmen who were sort of more traditionalist, who, in his words, quote, repeat the traditional capitalist symbolic ritual of liberty, free enterprise, the American way, opportunity, individual initiative. They repeat it sincerely as their fathers repeated it before them. But the ritual has lost its meaning and mass appeal before the centralizing, statizing power of the managerial revolution, the institutions of American society, the Constitution, the vision of the founders, and the spirit of 1776 are swept away like so much litter, end quote. This is the voice of one of the key intellectual founders of mainstream American conservatism as we know it today. Now, it'd be one thing if he was saying, just sort of evaluating that's what's happening in America as of 1941, but he's obviously happy about it. In 1947, Burnham wrote a book entitled The Struggle for the World, in which he wrote, quote, the reality is that the only alternative to the communist world empire is an American empire, which will be, if not literally worldwide in formal boundaries, capable of exercising decisive world control. Nothing less than this can be the positive or offensive phase of a rational United States policy, end quote. In the mid-1950s, Burnham joined National Review's staff at the invitation of William F. Buckley Jr. himself, and Burnham became senior editor at National Review for more than two decades. This up-till-1939 Trotskyist who wrote the things I just shared with you and much more interesting stuff. In the first few decades at National Review were dominated by ex-communist writers who were really, above all else, obsessed with opposing the Soviets and who really didn't value much else besides that. They were fine with authoritarianism at home in the name of keeping America safe from the communist menace. Which brings us to William F. Buckley Jr. himself. This man deserves his own detailed DHP Villains feature, and someday I'm going to do it, but for now, just a bit about the basics on him. And he's probably the biggest villain in the whole story, for a variety of reasons. Buckley was from a wealthy oil family, and after serving in the military in World War II, he attended Yale. While there, he joined, I kid you not, Skull and Bones. By the way, while at Yale, he was also an FBI informant, ratting on people who had the wrong ideas at Yale. Buckley also worked for the CIA in an official capacity for a few years after graduating from Yale, as did so many other bonesmen of that time period. Of course, unofficially, you always hear that the CIA is kind of like the mafia. You can't unjoin it. So while he only officially worked for the CIA for a few years after university, it doesn't seem very far-fetched to think that he was a CIA man to one degree or another for the remainder of his life. And in fact, there are conspiracy theories floating out there that aren't that implausible that the CIA may have financed and helped set up National Review, which, considering how much we know about what the CIA did do as far as getting into the media business, is not that far-fetched. 
Lots and lots of media outlets were either owned or heavily influenced by the CIA in the Cold War. Now, Buckley, after writing for other publications and writing some books and things, founded National Review magazine in 1955 to be the mouthpiece of this new right that he was basically creating. And Murray Rothbard writes of this, quote, It was National Review that consciously and cleverly transformed the content of the old right into something very like its opposite, while preserving the old forms and rituals, such as lip service to the free market and to the Constitution of the United States, end quote. A lot of writers, again... I've said it already in this episode a few times, but it deserves repeating. A lot of the writers Buckley published in National Review were themselves former communists up until relatively recently, and they didn't have as priority things like individual freedom and sort of the American Jeffersonian traditions of limited government, etc. Instead, they were focused almost single-mindedly on being tough on communism. And if that required authoritarianism at home and bending of the constitution, like so be it. And what Buckley and national review did and, and if some other new right venues as well, but national review was the, the most prominent and powerful at the time. What they did was to set themselves up as kind of the arbiters of conservatism of what it meant to be conservative or right wing. And from that position, they would purge the American political right of all of its kind of anti-war, libertarian-ish, anti-corporate elements by ridiculing all of the old rightists as being isolationist and soft on communism and all that. And American mainstream liberalism was totally cool with it and on board. The liberal establishment from very early on, though they disagreed with Buckley and had their little debates with him and whatever, the real establishment liberals from very early on basically appointed Buckley as the quote-unquote respectable spokesman for American conservatism and as kind of the arbiter of what the brand really meant. And Buckley was a very sharp guy, a very skillful writer and debater, very articulate, and so he was able to seize the brand of right-wing and conservatism, etc., at the very moment where the old right was fading out, kind of naturally anyway, because a lot of its leading lights were retiring or even dying off and so on. And as brilliant as he was, and as much as I love him, of course, Murray Rothbard, at least at that moment, was not able single-handedly to keep alive this movement as it was fading out. And Buckley and the rest of National Review were happy to speed along the process of getting rid of the old right. Now, eventually, Buckley and company tried to purge some of the kind of racist and anti-Semitic elements out of mainstream American conservatism, but that wasn't their priority for a long time. Their big priority for a long time was getting rid of isolationism on the American right. Isolationism, the smear for people who are skeptical of militarism, interventionism, imperialism, etc., Getting rid of that was their real priority, and they had mostly achieved it by the end of the 1950s through relentless media attacks and smears on what was left of the old right. By contrast, they took their sweet time getting rid of, or, or trying to at least get rid of, segregationism on the American right. So, for example, at least as late as 1957, Buckley himself was writing vigorous defenses of Southern segregation laws. 
So in other words, Buckley was happy to defend Southern segregationists, but he was eager to throw principled anti-war free marketeer libertarianish right-wingers under the bus. It was only after the old right had been decisively shoved out of the picture in the 1960s that National Review began to really turn away from defending segregation. Now, the Barry Goldwater presidential campaign of 1964 is very interesting because in that campaign and its rhetoric and its messaging, you can still see some remnants of the old right hanging on. And this is probably, I think, due almost entirely to the influence of Carl Hess, who was one of Goldwater's speechwriters and obviously had an important influence on a lot of that. And Hess was a great guy, in a lot of ways, more old right than anything else, libertarian-ish, eventually later in life declared himself an anarchist, and I did my very first DHP Heroes feature on him, shows you how much I like him. And while the audio quality on it is not great, as an early episode while I was still learning how to podcast, I stand by the content. But while Goldwater's campaign in 64 had some of the hallmarks of the old right, there also were neocons and new right people heavily involved as well. And so mixed in with some very libertarian sounding rhetoric on domestic issues in the Goldwater campaign, you also have the over the top, aggressive, bombastic hawkishness of the new right, which of course is very, very pro state power. Just, you know, we don't want a TVA, but we want a giant military industrial complex and CIA and all this stuff. And so by the sixties, this had pretty much been accomplished, throwing the old right out and replacing it with this very, very different, much more statist and authoritarian new right. And then beginning in the 1970s, to augment the new right, you get the neoconservatives who are kind of their own thing, but clearly very close to the new right. They're, they're definitely related to and allied with the Buckleyite new right, but they're kind of their own little clique that's a little bit different in some ways. And the neocons, I can't do them justice here, but rest assured, One of these days, I'll do something on the history of the neocons. And in my eyes, what the neocons do, and a lot of them, by the way, again, former communists in their their background, um, what a lot of the neocons do is to take the worst elements of the Buckleyite New Right and kind of crank them up to 11 or even 12. But this is how terms like right-wing and conservative went in American political jargon from denoting very principled opposition to state power across the board at home and abroad went from meaning that when you said someone is part of the right to being identified with a very aggressive lowbrow jingoism of someone like Mark Levin or Sean Hannity or all the usual suspects worshiping the national security state and its functionaries and the police and in many cases vigorously opposing individual liberty and so on these people who pay lip service occasionally to things like the free market and individual freedom but who really don't seem to mean much of that stuff but boy do they sure mean what they say when they're talking about wanting more wars or more police state Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. 
You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission, from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.